0: Our Bibles are made up of two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is about the first two-thirds of our Bibles. So the, the final third of the Bible is called the New Testament, and even that can be divided up into sections. We have what we know as the Gospels and Acts, and then the Epistles, and then the Book of Revelation. The Gospels and Acts are made up of five books, four Gospels, and the Book of Acts, which was written by one of the Gospel writers named Luke. And today we are studying the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 56, uh, I'm sorry, verses 26 to 56. This is on page 830 of the Bible under the seat in front of you. So throughout this gospel account, Luke has been telling us about Jesus and what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so early on in the book, Luke described Jesus' birth, uh, prophecies about his birth, a few small stories about his early years. And then he skipped ahead to when Jesus was about 30 years old and described Jesus being baptized uh, in the river, uh, the Jordan River in Israel. He was baptized to demonstrate his solidarity with the sinners he came to save. And then he went into the desert as if his hair were still dripping wet when he went into the desert uh, and was tempted by Satan himself, successfully resisted temptation, unlike Adam in the Garden of Eden and unlike Israel in the wilderness, And then he described the teaching of Jesus, Luke did, and the works of Jesus. In many cases, the works he described uh, are miracles, healing people, causing storms to cease, even causing dead people to come back to life. He also taught about who God is and who he himself, who Jesus himself is. What did Jesus say about himself? He said lots of controversial truths. He made people really angry by what he said about himself. He said he was the Messiah that the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of our Bible, had predicted. He said that he had come to make all things right, to undo the curse that came upon all humanity and all the earth because of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. He predicted, Jesus did, that he would be killed and buried and then raised again. And even his closest followers were confused by those statements. They couldn't get their minds around it. And these controversial truths did not sit well with the religious leaders of his day. So those leaders, often known in the book of Luke as the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees, became increasingly hostile toward Jesus and looked for ways to shut him up. Eventually, they arrested him, gave him a trial, could find nothing wrong with him in that trial, but decided to execute him anyway. It was their way of saying, we think this guy is a lunatic and needs to be shut down. He's wicked for saying that he's the only Savior of sinners, and we are done with this. And that brings us to our passage today, Luke 23, verses 26 through 56. Please follow along as I read this aloud. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed Him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for Him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for Me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with Him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide His garments. And the people stood by watching saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. In July of 1861, dozens, if not hundreds, of people crowded to a field in Virginia, a town named Manassas, along a river called Bull Run, at least a stream called Bull Run. And these people brought picnic blankets and picnic baskets in order to watch a spectacle. It was what we know now as the First Battle of Manassas, or the First Battle of Bull Run, which was the first battle of the Civil War. And people decided this would be a great time to take the family outside and watch some action, some entertainment. And so they sat there and eventually had to scurry away and take their picnic blankets and baskets away with them to keep themselves safe. But this was a spectacle. A spectacle is something that captures human attention. We fixate on something that's projected to us. A few weeks ago, I took my younger boys to a monster truck show. Not recommended, but I went. And it was a a spectacle in its own right. Uh, Next week... This time next week, millions of people, mostly in America, will watch a spectacle known as the Masters Tournament. In about a month, people will flock to London to watch a spectacle known as the Coronation of the King. Every four years, Americans watch spectacles called Presidential Debates, which become more and more of a spectacle every time they have one. And in 1893, people from all over the world came to Chicago. About 25 million or so people came to Chicago to attend what we know as the Columbian Exposition or the 1893 World's Fair, a place where people could fixate on inventions like the Ferris wheel or Cracker Jacks or the zipper, things we all appreciate. And it's one thing to watch a spectacle or to attend a spectacle, it's another thing altogether to be the spectacle, to be the center of the spectacle. But that's what Jesus was on that day almost exactly 2,000 years ago when he hung on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem. Our passage called that event a spectacle that people had gathered to watch, and in some cases it seems to celebrate and to participate in. Our passage today tells us that Jesus endured the suffering of the cross to the bitter end. He endured the suffering of the cross to the very bitter end, which calls us to worship Him, to respond to Him in faith and repentance, as this entire gospel tract called Luke is intended to do. We know from the very couple first sentences of this book that Luke was writing this to generate understanding and to encourage the faith of a man named Theophilus, to believe everything that he wrote here, to tell the true story about who Jesus was and what it looks like to follow him. And what Luke tells us in this lengthy passage we just read is that Jesus endured the suffering of the cross to the bitter end, and so we should respond to him indeed with that faith and repentance. We see four aspects of Jesus' suffering at the cross. In verses 26 through 31, we see that Jesus demonstrated His compassion for sinners. Jesus demonstrated His compassion for sinners. We see this actually throughout the passage, but in kind of a concentrated form here in these first few verses. Here, Jesus is on the road to be killed, but even on that way, while staggering along, carrying the weight of the cross beam that He would soon be attached to by nails, even in that moment, He was concerned for those who were watching this spectacle begin. It wasn't long before someone else had to help carry the cross because Jesus had been so brutally abused, probably had not slept the entire night before, perhaps for a couple of nights now. We don't know exactly, but he's overwhelmed with grief, with exhaustion, with blood. He's wearing a crown of thorns. He's being mocked at every turn, and so it was necessary to have someone else help carry this beam. And so in verse 26 here, Simon of Cyrene, a man who had probably come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, was called into action and was essentially the first person to tell us what it looks like to take up your cross and follow Jesus. We really don't know a lot about Simon, but it does appear that uh, some of his children from some of the other gospel accounts, some of his children became followers and were probably likely uh, active in the early church. And perhaps they're mentioned even in Romans 16. So perhaps from this act, Simon himself became a believer. We're conjecturing a little bit here, but I think it, it, it makes sense. Perhaps Simon himself becomes a believer here after he sees what Jesus endures for sinners, after he sees what Jesus himself said on the cross, just seven short sentences, only a few of which are recorded here in Luke. But then Simon's faith was carried on to his children, Rufus and Alexander, Mark tells us his names, their names. And perhaps then they influenced other believers who have then influenced people like us to believe the gospel. But while Jesus is walking on this road, there are great multitudes of people because Jerusalem's a small place and because lots of people were there for the Passover, and there are people along the road who are mourning and lamenting and weeping. You, you notice that Luke once again mentions the women who are, who are crying here, as Luke has done over and over again showing the beauty of the, of the woman who ministered to Jesus throughout this book and throughout his, his ministry. But Jesus hears this mourning and hears the, the lamenting and the weeping and turns it around and says, You don't need to be weeping for me. You need to be weeping for yourselves and for your loved ones because of what's going to come. Likely, Jesus had a couple different uh, events in mind there. One would have been, in, uh, just a couple chapters ago, we, we read significantly about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the year AD 70. Likely, Jesus had that in mind here. Also possibly just the judgment of sin that all of us receive justly because of our rebellion against God. And so he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your loved ones because you're going to bear the true wrath of God yourselves if you do not repent and believe the Gospel. This idea where he says that it will be uh, better to not have children, those who are barren and wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed, that's completely counter to the idea of the Old Testament. The beauty it is to have children, the privilege it is to, to bear children and to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And here Jesus says it's better if you don't have children because at least then they're not going to face the, the wrath of God and bear it themselves. He says that people in that day when the judgment of God comes, in verse 30, they'll begin to say to these mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. What Jesus is doing there is quoting Hosea 10, verse 8, where it says, thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars and they shall say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills, fall on us. Why did people say that in Hosea's day? Because of the judgment of God. Why would Jesus say that they would say that here? Because of the judgment of God. And finally in Revelation Chapter 6, verse 15, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves, and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So Jesus was saying, that day is coming very soon. Weep for yourselves because of that. But even way down the road, great judgment is coming on all those who resist the Lamb of God, Jesus Himself, and refuse to repent before Him. We have echoes of chapter 21 here about the the fact that it's better not to have children that you have to carry out of Jerusalem in in a panic when the judgment comes. But verse 31 is probably one of the more enigmatic statements in all of Luke as you look at that there. Essentially, you're asking yourself, what does it mean that the wood is green and then the wood is dry? He's using a picture here that perhaps you're familiar with if you've ever tried to burn wood in a fireplace or a fire pit or anything like that. If it's wet wood, if it's just recently been cut down, it's not going to burn well. But if it's been cut for years and it's been kept in a dry place for years, that stuff goes up like a match. And what, So Jesus is using that metaphor to say there's great judgment coming. Of course, the question is, what is the green wood and what is the wet wood? And it seems like he's simply contrasting. There's a little bit of judgment now. There's really bad judgment later. That seems to be the picture that Jesus is portraying here. But even in these comments, what he's doing is demonstrating compassion for sinners. He's showing compassion for you and for me and for all Sinners. He knows that the wrath of God is heavy and severe. And so we should fear God. We should stand before him in awe and take him seriously. Jesus is demonstrating his compassion for sinners. In verses 32 to 43, Jesus was numbered with transgressors. And there I'm simply taking the language from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, which Jesus quoted from in a previous passage a few weeks ago. Jesus was numbered with transgressors. What Luke tells us about crucifixion is almost embarrassingly little. Like if we knew nothing about it from history, we would just think, okay, that's fine. He goes into almost no detail here. He didn't need to. Why did he not need to? Because everyone that read the book of Luke in the first century knew exactly what he was talking about, and it was horrible. Without going into the gory details, what we can at least say is that it was the worst that the Romans could come up with for who they considered to be the worst of society, the dregs of society. So let me read a couple paragraphs here from an author named uh, Glenn Scrivener. He says, crucifixion was, of course, extremely painful. We get our word excruciating from the Latin, excrucis, from the cross. Yet more than this, it was humiliating. To be impaled naked before the watching world was as undignified an end as the Romans could devise. And the shame was a large part of the point. To us, the cross has become a sacred symbol and as such embodies the very opposite of its ancient meaning. He goes on to say that corpses cut down from the cross would routinely be cast into a ditch to be pecked at by birds and eaten by dogs. Those crucified were garbage. The cross was the slave's punishment, quote unquote. Certain classes of people could be could not be crucified, those who were on the higher end of the hierarchy, and certain classes could be crucified, those who were slaves. Crucifixion was either appropriate or an unspeakable evil, depending on who was on the cross. To see someone crucified was to watch their unpersoning and to hear the message do not go the way of this wretch. This is what Jesus experienced for you and for me, was this unpersoning, this humiliation publicly portrayed. We'll read more, a little bit more about this as we go on. We read in verse 32 about these two criminals who were led away to be put to death with him. Even the way Luke words this to others who were criminals is to stand in contrast to the fact that Jesus himself was not a criminal but was burying the criminal's place, was burying the criminal's judgment. When they came to the place that is called the skull, which you may know the Aramaic word for that is Golgotha, the Latin word for that is Calvary. So anytime we sing of the glory of Calvary, we're singing of the glory of the skull, what happened there. And there they crucified him. That's all Luke tells us. He doesn't go into these details that I just read a little bit about, of, the, the humility, the shame, again, because they knew what that meant, what that looked like. Probably everybody reading the Gospel of Luke when he wrote it had seen someone be crucified. They knew what they were talking about. But even there on the cross, again we see Jesus' compassion when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He has a spirit of forgiveness toward people like us who through our sin and our rebellion against him nailed him to that cross. In fulfillment of the passage that Carl read, Psalm 22, they cast lots to divide his garments. In other words, He was worthless to them, so much so they could nail him to a cross. But at least his clothing was of value. Somebody else could take that and find some use for it. And The people stood by, watching. You notice the different groups of people in this passage. For for, for starters, you have these people watching. You have rulers scoffing, which sounds a lot like Psalm 2 being fulfilled. You have criminals joining in here in the scoffing. The rulers are saying things like he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. There's the irony here that if he had chosen to save himself, he could not save others. But by choosing not to save himself, he was offering forgiveness to even those people who had hammered the nails into his hands. Because he is the king, he did not choose to save himself. The inscription in verse 38 that was over his head was essentially the crime that he had committed. We learn from other gospel writers. And by the way, I'll just add, if you have never taken the time to compare what the four gospel accounts, the the specific details that each one adds, I want to encourage you to do that. I put together a document this week. I'd be happy to email to you a a PDF of it, uh, essentially with different colors, highlighting the different parts that each of the gospel writers contributed. Luke adds a few details like this part about the daughters of Jerusalem weeping that none of the other gospel writers include. Uh, the, The part we'll get to in a few minutes about the thief on the cross next to him. None of the other Gospels tell us that part. and So it's fascinating to see which authors included which details and, and to consider why they may have done that. But what Jesus was experiencing here was hostility. Why was he the object of hostile threats and caustic words from these soldiers, from the crowd walking by, from those who had gathered to watch this? Because of what he had said. And I want to tell you, Christian, to not be surprised when you are the object of hostility for the faith that you espouse and cling to. Expect hostility for your faith. We see here in this passage the beauty of Christ being numbered with transgressors, that even these criminals who are hanging next to him for sins that they had actually committed. They, they deserved to be there that day, according to the Roman law and according to who should and should not be crucified. They fit the bill, but Jesus did not. But even in this, Jesus offers forgiveness to this dying thief next to him. I heard a snippet of a sermon by a pastor named Alistair Begg. He's a pastor in Cleveland. And the, the part of the, the sermon that it was turned into a really well-done video is called The, the Uh, The man on the middle cross. And it powerfully portrays the beauty of the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And so it it essentially pictures what Alistair Begg describes as, imagine this thief getting to heaven. Perhaps you've heard people say, you know, if someone enters into heaven and God says, on what basis should I let you into heaven? And he said, just imagine this dying thief, a few minutes after being granted forgiveness by Jesus, he, he gets to heaven and God says to him, on what basis should I let you into heaven? And he said, on the basis of the middle man on the cross, the man on the middle cross. That's the only basis any of us have to be granted access to heaven. On the basis of the man on the middle cross. So put your faith in him, not in your performance, not in being a member of Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church or any other, any kind of church. Put your hope in Jesus and trust in him And demonstrate your trust by walking with Him in faith and repentance and obedience and love. But even from this idea that there's this man here who's listening to Jesus being railed on and saying, Look, don't you get it? We deserve this condemnation. He was innocent. But he received the miraculous gift of conversion because of the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the forgiveness that Christ offers him. And I just want to encourage you to believe in the power of the Word of God to change even the most hardened sinner. God still miraculously and powerfully saves sinners in unexpected ways at unexpected times. And here while I read from every book I have in my library, let me read another section from... A book called Word-Centered Church, and this man who wrote it went to seminary with this guy that he uh, tells this story about. So he said, Michael, not his real name, had no interest in actually reading the Bible. He was a Muslim, after all, and he lived in one of the strongest Muslim enclaves in Nigeria. Still, he did figure out one way to put the Bible given to him by a Christian to good use. Its crackly thin pages were perfect for rolling joints and cigarettes. Papers for rolling our own cigarettes were expensive, Michael said. So we would tear out pages from the Bibles and use them for our rolling papers. On one occasion, Michael tore a page from the Bible for rolling a joint, but ended up stuffing it into his pocket. That night, bored and unable to sleep, he pulled the page of the Bible from his pocket and read these words from Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. For the next three weeks, he could not get the verse out of his head. He returned to the Christian who had shared the gospel with him. One night, alone in his room, Michael prayed, "'Lord God, I want to taste you like this verse says.'" And that same evening, accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. Michael's Muslim family and community did not respond very well. At first, they expressed concern. Then they displayed anger. Then they made death threats. Michael was the first convert in the community, And his conversion felt like a grave threat to everyone. Local mosque leaders denounced him on the mosque's outdoor loudspeakers. His own father told him that he would rather see him dead. He had to spend every night at a different missionary's house because of the danger. But all this started with a Bible verse on a wadded up piece of paper dug out of a pocket. God still saves sinners in powerful and beautiful and unexpected ways just like he did on that day when this dying thief hung next to Jesus on the cross. So don't give up hope for lost sinners. Keep praying for those people you love, for those people you've evangelized. And I encourage you as well to keep reading good books and tracts like the ones we have out called Who is Jesus and Two Ways to Live and just basically memorize those so that you can gladly share the good news with other sinners. I also commend to you a book I won't read for now, called A Gospel Primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. We've had this out on the table in the past. Highly recommend this. There's, about, uh, there's 31 devotionals, um, just one for each day of the month to meditate on different aspects of what the crucifixion, what Christ's death and resurrection, uh, what those truths mean to us, implications of the gospel for our lives. And I think that would be a wonderful book to read and then to give away to another believer. So Jesus demonstrated his compassion for sinners. Secondly, Jesus was numbered with transgressors. In verses 44 to 49, Jesus died in faith. Jesus died in faith. Maybe that sounds like a strange way to say that. Of course he would believe. What he was doing was he was entrusting himself to his father, as he put it in verse 46. His death was dramatic in verses 44 to 46, about the middle of the day, and there was darkness over the whole land. This would have fulfilled Amos 8, 9, that says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. When Amos wrote that, he was just picturing a day of judgment in general. But the reason that God caused the earth to go dark at that moment was because all of the wrath of God was being poured out at that moment down to the dregs on Jesus himself. As part of the moment when Jesus died as well, the curtain was torn in two on the temple, 90 feet high. This could not have been done by man. This was an act of God, just like the darkness was. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 31, verse 5, "...into your hand I commit my spirit." Jesus was praying the Bible until he could not pray anymore, until the moment he himself entered back into heaven. This passage is describing the peak of human history. All of the Old Testament was looking forward to the moment when there would be a lamb who would be slain once for all time, rather than having to make a sacrifice day after day and year after year. And all the New Testament looks back then on this moment that we're reading about here. And we will... For the rest of time and for the rest of eternity, look back on that moment when Jesus breathed his last and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus' death was a dramatic moment. His death was also undeserved. In verses 47 to 49, we're reminded of this again. You notice in verse 41 that the dying thief said, we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. So that's the testimony of the dying thief Herod in verse 15 said, "Uh, I don't see any reason to kill him here. Pilate three different times in the passage we looked at last week said, I really don't see any reason to kill Jesus. And now you have this centurion in verse 47. When he saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Do you get the gist of what Luke is trying to say? Jesus undeservingly took the punishment that we deserved for our sin. He should not have been crucified, but he was, because he was treated like the slave, like the criminal should have been. I'm not saying the slave should have been treated this way. I'm simply saying that that's the way that slaves were treated. But criminals certainly were treated this way, and Jesus took our place as the true criminal. And so if you're not a Christian and you're reading this passage... And you're asking what to make of this. I would just put it on you. What do you make of this? What are your options of how you kind of corroborate the truth of this passage, the statements of this passage, with what else you can read about Jesus in common sources, in historical sources outside of the Bible? Basically, if you take what the Bible says and you match it up with what other historical authors at that time said, it matches up. Jesus truly did die. And you can't escape that fact. And so then you have to reckon with the rest of what the Gospel tells us. That he truly was buried and he truly was raised again. And if you have questions about that, I encourage you to come back next Sunday as we just simply go on into the next passage of the book of Luke. But was this a mistake that Jesus died in the place of other people? Was this a miscalculation? that people misread his motives in some heinous way? Was this a fictional account that Luke was writing here? Was this drummed up by early followers of Jesus as a way to justify their devotion to him? I would argue that this is telling us the truth and that as a result, we should respond in faith and repentance and obedience because Jesus died truly in faith. And fourth in our passage here, verses 50 through 56, Jesus was buried by loyal followers. He was buried by loyal followers. This is an important aspect of the Gospel. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, that he was uh, killed according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the Scriptures. But these loyal followers who, even though he was dead, did not run away, like Peter had, like the other disciples had, these people swooped in at the last moment and sought to give honor to Jesus even though they couldn't reconcile all that has just happened over the last couple hours and last couple of days, they can't make sense of it all. But they thought, truly this man, there is something different about him. Let's at least give him an appropriate burial. As we read in, or as I read from Glenn Scrivener, what happened to, buried, to, to, to criminals who were crucified? Let the birds eat them. Let the dogs eat them from the ditch, from the gutter. Throw their rotting bodies into a hole along with all the rest of the rotting bodies who have been crucified in Rome under Roman law. Instead, this rich man named Joseph comes in and he goes to Pilate and lets his cover fall off that he is actually a follower of Jesus and says, I want to take that body and I want to give it an appropriate burial. And Pilate says, sure, I don't care. And again, you can look at some of the, the details from the Gospel of John, for instance, and get a few more details here. But essentially, what we know about Joseph is he's a wealthy man. He's kept his following of Jesus under cover. He was a member of the council, which was the group that initially decided back in chapter 22 to kill Jesus. But he probably wasn't there, because he, it says that he did not consent to their decision and action. We also see he was a good and righteous man, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. In other words, he loved the Old Testament. He believed every word of it, and he was longing for the day when the king would bring in his kingdom. And so this man went to Pilate, asked for the body, and then he took it down, and imagine there in verse 53 the care that he was taking to to take the dead weight of this bloodied man off of this cross and wrap it in a linen shroud. Thinking of Joseph's position of power, the fact that he's a wealthy man, likely meaning, and again the fact that he's part of the Jewish council, he's a mover and a shaker in Jewish circles. But we find from this passage he's an undercover disciple. And I want to encourage you to think of your own discipleship and your own disciple making as being you are an undercover discipler, disciple and discipler, placed where you are As the person that you are, with the gifting that you have and the background that you have, so that you can then make disciples where you are. Uh, A professor at Southern Seminary named Tim Bucher writes about this in a book called Overcoming Walls to Witnessing. He said, What do you call someone who works at a hospital assisting doctors? What do you call them? A nurse. What do you call that person who flies to the Philippines to serve? We call them a medical missionary. What's the difference? Why do we not see a nurse here as a medical missionary here? Why do they perhaps not see themselves as a medical missionary here? Years ago, he writes, I was visiting a church and overheard a conversation that crystallized my thinking on this issue. One woman asked another woman, what do you do? The second woman replied, what do I do? I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ on mission for him, cleverly disguised as an emergency room nurse. So how do you view your work? I'm a retiree, cleverly disguised. I'm a disciple maker, cleverly disguised as a retiree. It's a little harder for me to be a pastor. You know, like I'm a disciple maker, cleverly disguised as a pastor. Like, hmm, I don't know about the clever part. But God's placed you where you are, you are a disciple maker, cleverly disguised as a student, cleverly disguised as a truck driver, cleverly disguised as a musician. And we could go on and on and on. God's put you where you are to tell the truth about who he is. I already pointed out the reason we needed a tomb here that no one else had ever been laid in was so that people could know where he was. Again, if they just took his body and threw it in the heap with all the other dead bodies who had been crucified recently for the crimes they had committed, how would you then know that Jesus had come out of that heap of bodies? How would you then know that he hadn't just deteriorated or had not just been buried by other bodies. Instead, he was in a tomb where no one else had ever been, carved out of the rock, likely, by Pilate, or I'm sorry, by Joseph, and by his helpers, so that he then himself could be buried there. But notice the language of chapter 23 verse 53. When I read this this week, I underlined it and just was astonished by it, because of what I think Luke is trying to do with it. Verse 53, then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. What else does that sound like to you from the book of Luke? Try this on for size from chapter 2, verse 7. They wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. They wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. I think, totally making this up, I didn't read this anywhere else, so maybe I'm totally wrong. It sounds like Luke is trying to make you think of Jesus as a baby. And say, look at his humility, being wrapped in cloth, laid in a manger. Now look at his humility, being wrapped in cloth, and laid in a tomb. Luke wants you to connect these dots. From beginning to end, Jesus lived his life in humility and laid it down for sinners. And so we read here of what Jesus accomplished and why he accomplished it to some extent, you know, it, essentially, Luke left it up to the gospel, or to the uh, apostles like James and John and Peter and Paul to fill in the gaps of what the cross accomplished. Of course, he tells us more of this in the book of Acts as well. But what I want to say is that we need to make sure that our core tenets of Christianity are not that Jesus lets us fulfill our, our highest potential. Instead, he frees us from the wrath of God. Jesus isn't about restoring us to happiness in this life. He's about reconciling us to God. And so we hear a lot of songs. If you turn on certain Christian music radio stations, you hear a lot of songs about the pain in our broken hearts. But we do not hear a lot of songs about the way that we have broken the law of God. And so I want to encourage us to choose to listen to songs primarily that make us think about the Gospel and that press the Gospel into the margins of our lives. Have you ever seen a, uh, like a log cabin? They take mud on the inside and press it into all the, the cracks to keep dust out, to keep bugs out, things like this. Press the Gospel into the cracks of your heart by listening to music that tells you that Jesus died to forgive you, to make you right with God, not to make you feel better about yourself, not to make you think you can fulfill your potential. So the disturbing aspect of a lot of Christian music today is that we kind of reinterpret the gospel into being about fulfillment and potential and happiness instead of reconciliation and repentance before God. Our passage called what happened that day in Jerusalem as a spectacle. You notice this in verse 48, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle returned home mourning, weeping, beating their breasts, crying their eyes out. What did we just do? This was a spectacle, which I mentioned earlier. is simply something that captures our attention, causes our brains to focus and fixate on something projected to us. Christian author Tony Reinke has written an entire book on this subject. I cannot promote this book to you enough, unless I give you all a free copy of it, which I probably can't do, but still, want to highly encourage this book, Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ in the Media Age. And I uh, just want to read a brief section of this to you. Tony Ranke, an author in Minneapolis, writes, The act of crucifixion, repeated thousands of times in the Roman Empire, was a spectacle guaranteed to attract attention. The nailing of living bodies onto trees along public roads was a Roman blood sport for the masses, public and visible, not confined to the arena. Symbolically, crucifixion was the flexing arm of Rome's ruling power before gawking spectators in public. So vile was the punishment that, by law, Roman citizens could not be crucified. The cross was reserved for the public dehumanization of rebel slaves— a form of intimidation to keep Rome's large, servile class suppressed, intimidated, and ordered. Crucifixion was cleverly designed, we might say diabolically designed, to be an almost theatrical enactment of the sadistic and inhumane impulses that lie within human beings. The cross of Christ was the greatest spectacle in cosmic history for what it ironically subverted. There, on the hill of Calvary, Christ disarmed the powers and authorities. And in his victory, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2.15 By divine design, Christians are pro-spectacle. And we give our entire lives to this great spectacle, now historically past and presently invisible. Christian, I want to ask you, have you made this greatest spectacle the reason for which you live? Is this, about, is this what your life is about? Declaring the truth of the spectacle that Jesus hung on a cross to die for sinners, to make us right with God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we bless you today for the cross as we do every Lord's Day and every day of our lives. We thank you for Jesus. Truly God, truly man. Held up before sinners, crucified in their view so that we could be reconciled to You. So that we could have a new and living way of access to You through His shed blood. We praise You for Him. Amen.